Um, Our reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 to 19. The reading is as follows. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, uh, Lily, for that reading. Uh, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer just before we come to this text. Father, as always, we approach... um, We approach you with nothing uh, but our spiritual poverty. We approach you in fear and trembling as is appropriate. Uh, We approach you relying on nothing but your mercy, your goodness, your kindness, your love for us. Um, And Father, we pray that you would speak now. Uh, We pray that you would speak, that you would break us so that you can remake us, that you would um, form and reform us. And... um, Make us more like Jesus. We pray this in his precious name and in the power of his spirit. Amen. We all hate spoilers, don't we? Isn't it true we hate spoilers? You know, uh, the guy who gives you the punchline before the end of the joke, uh, that woman who blurts out who wins 
before the season finale has actually aired. She thinks she's the only one with Google. Um, we all hate spoilers, except when we don't. Sometimes the stress is just too much, and we're only too glad to know how the story ends. So when you get to halftime and you are tunneled down and you don't have any fingernails left, you're actually superbly grateful for that loudmouth at the office who congratulated you on the 3-2 win. Or when uh, you're reading that thriller at night and it's keeping you awake, you're only too happy to skip to the second last chapter to find out that she actually does make it out alive. Or that whodunit series that you're watching on Netflix and you can't bear it anymore. The episode's menu then becomes your best friend. When I watch the 2019 Rugby World Cup final for the 27th time, I can still only survive the first half by knowing, knowing without doubt that deep in the second half, Lukanyo Am is going to chip the ball over that first line of defense, and then he's going to shovel it wide to Makazolo Mapimpi, who is going to canter into World Cup glory. Can I have an amen? And then just to rub it in, Cheslin Colby is going to leave the England captain lying face down in the mud to go on to score one of the most brilliant tries in World Cup history. We're not here to talk about that. But truth be told, the only way I can survive the first half is by knowing how it ends. I'm making light of a very serious and important truth in the Christian life. And the truth is this. Although life can often feel like defeat... We live under the banner of victory. Victory is ours. We may be taking a beating in the first half, but we know the final whistle is coming and we know the scoreboard will be in our favor. And so in a strange way, we can celebrate now, even in the midst of the pain and the struggle. Let me try and make this more concrete. Every week, just like you, every week I see God's people singing. That's fairly mundane in a church setting. It's fairly commonplace. It's a week-by-week reality. But it's not so commonplace when you think about who's doing the singing. This one who's going through the most painful, ugly divorce. This one who's battling with cancer. This one who's struggling with besetting sin and shame. This one who's mourning the loss of a life partner. Those are not categories. Those are real people. Real people celebrating, rejoicing in their God. How? How? How can they possibly rejoice? They know how the story ends. Right now, they are waging the most bitter war but they are doing it under the banner of certain victory. And so they celebrate. They can rejoice through the tears, even now. That's really what Exodus 14 and 15 are all about. Now, we did actually start this series last year. I hope you remember all of that, right? You're going to have to dip into the archives and dust it all off. We started this last year. We're actually picking up the story at its climax. But here's a quick refresher. So, in Exodus so far, you remember, you cast your minds back to to last year. At the beginning of the book, we found by God's providence, God's people were in Egypt. It's not the land of the promise. Even so, they are flourishing. They are doing what they were created to do. They are multiplying, flourishing. 
And yet there's an enemy in the land. Pharaoh is this serpent-like figure who acts as the great enemy of God's people and God's created order. He acts against their blessed flourishing by destroying their inheritance. He throws the sons of Israel into the river. The situation looks bleak. It looks utterly hopeless. But God hears Israel's cry, and he raises up a redeemer. And if you remember, Moses is like Israel in miniature. He has to live the life of Israel before Israel. He is saved from the waters of death. He contends with the Egyptian slave driver. He is pursued by Pharaoh out into the wilderness where he meets God at the mountain of fire. That's the story of Israel. Only it plays out in the life of Moses first. Then God sends Moses to take Israel on that same journey for which he has prepared him. Moses confronts Israel on, uh, Pharaoh on behalf of Israel. And you remember that cosmic battle unfolds between the false gods of Egypt, Egypt and the one true creator God of the universe. It's a battle for the hearts and minds of God's people. And of course, it's a battle with only one winner. Yahweh executes ten emphatic judgments on the false gods of Egypt. They climax in the death of Egypt's firstborn son. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner in the dungeon. Finally, Pharaoh relents. And Israel march out of Egypt with Egyptian gold in their bags and Egyptian converts in their midst. Ring any bells? I hope so. That brings us up to date. Chapters 14 and 15 are the final act in this drama. What you have in 14 is the story told in narrative prose. And then in 15 it's recounted in poetic song. And so they, they function together, they act together. They act together as a turning point in the whole book. If chapters 1 to 12 were about liberation, then chapters 13 to 18 are about pilgrimage. It's about the journey to the mountain of fire. And that's where the book ends. The book ends with Israel at the mountain. At the mountain, Israel are going to spend the rest of Exodus preparing for another journey to another mountain, Mount Zion. To put it another way, the first part, that first part of Exodus is about overcoming slavery. The second part is about preparing for a life of freedom with God. And 14 and 15 act as the hinge between the two. They're the pivot. They're right at the heart of the book, and they're right at the heart of the book's message. So, Israel have marched out of Egypt. What happens next? Even by the standards of this very strange story, what happens next is strange. So come with me to Exodus 13, verse 17. You need to be in Exodus 13, 14, 15. That's where we're going to camp this morning. Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. In other words, the promised land is north. God took the people south. He leads them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire away from the promised land in the opposite direction. 
In fact, he leads them straight into a trap. Exodus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, turn back and encamp between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites, Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Then verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go. We've lost their services. So he took his chariots and made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Now, here's a nation of families on foot being pursued by a highly mobile, highly motivated military machine. If you were to choose their escape route, the escape route for this family of nations, this, this, this nation of families, rather, if you were to choose their escape route, this is the worst possible route that you could pick. The worst. The Lord leads them into a corner. They have the sea at their backs. They've got the desert in front of them. They've got a murderous enemy bearing down upon them. They are caught literally between the devil and the deep blue sea. Why would the Lord do this to his own people? To a people he had gone to so much trouble to save. The answer is in the part of verse 4 that I never read. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Yahweh had already defeated ten false gods in Egypt. But one still remains. One is still left standing. Pharaoh himself, the divine God-man. And so the Lord leads the people into a trap, but the trap is for Pharaoh. As he approaches with his chariots and his horsemen, the Lord divides the two nations by a pillar of cloud and fire, darkness and light. And then an east wind blows all night and separates the waters so that Israel can pass through with a wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right. They walk through on dry ground. The Egyptians pursue, but they are confused. They get bogged down. Then in the words of the victory song, at the command of the Lord, the sea covered them. They were swallowed up by the waters. It's a great miracle. It's a great deliverance for God's people. It's a great redemption. It's a great victory for God over the enemies of his people. And that on its own should move us to sing his praises. But actually, that's not all there is. If it were possible, there's even more. Even more than that, there is a depth to this salvation that we can very easily miss unless we read carefully, attentively, prayerfully, and in context. The ancient Jewish commentators give us a clue to the depth of the salvation. They said that if you looked into the wall of water, either on your left or on your right, what you would see is fruit trees. 
Now, how on earth do they get there? How on earth do they get to fruit trees? Why fruit trees? Is this some sort of spaza shop on busy corner in the middle of the Red Sea? Here's an entrepreneur taking a gap at the traffic light. How do they get to fruit trees? Well, let's ask the obvious question. Where else have we seen fruit trees in the biblical narrative? Are the wheels turning? Where else have we seen fruit trees? If you're thinking the Garden of Eden, you would be right. But why would we go there? What took the minds of those early commentators to Genesis, all the way back to the beginning of Genesis? Let's look at the details of our story, our Exodus story, and see if we can find out, see if we can discern any possible connections. So in in Exodus 14, verse 21... You have a wind blowing over the water in the darkness of night. Where have we seen that? Genesis 1 verse 1. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the original Hebrew, that word for spirit is the same word for wind. It's the same word. In Exodus 14 verse 19 and 20, we have Yahweh separating Egypt and Israel using a pillar of darkness and light. On the first day of creation, God created light and separated light from darkness. In Exodus 14, verse 22, we have Yahweh dividing the waters from the waters and creating a space, an atmosphere, between them. On the second day of creation, God divided the waters from the waters and created a space, an atmosphere, between them. Again, in Exodus 14.22, Yahweh separates the waters. He does so to expose the dry land. On the third day of creation, God divided the waters to expose the dry land. And just as an aside, in, in the books of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, that word for dry land appears only in the Genesis story and in our Exodus story. It's the only place that word for dry land appears. So what do we have? We have the first four acts of creation mirrored in the story of the Exodus. We have the spirit wind blowing over the waters in the darkness. We have the separation of light and darkness. We have the separation of the waters. We have the opening up of dry ground. It's no wonder that the ancient Jews added fruit trees. Why? Because that was the very next act of creation point is this. God saved Israel in a way that would have reminded them of creation. He was saying to them, you are a new creation. I am remaking the world in you. Likewise, the judgment on Pharaoh, his chariots, his horsemen, was an uncreation. Just like the judgment of the flood on the generation of Noah was an uncreation of the world. In creation, God ordered the waters, told them their place, said this far and no further. And remember, the waters were a symbol of chaos in the ancient world. In his judgment on Pharaoh, he is giving Pharaoh what he wants, right? Which is most often how we discover God's judgment. The character of God's judgment is exactly this in the scriptures, to give us over to our stubborn rebellion. 
in his judgment on Pharaoh, he's giving Pharaoh what he wants. Pharaoh does not want to live in a world ruled by the Creator God. And so God, after ten emphatic warnings, gives him what he wants. Gives him over to his heart's desire. He gives him a world without a Creator God. He gives him over to the chaos of the waters. He gives him over to uncreation. Now the people of Israel, they would have looked back and they would have seen the waters of judgment closing over Pharaoh, his horses, his chariots. And they would have realized that in something similar to the Passover, by God's grace, they had just passed through the same waters of death and judgment. Only by God's grace they reached the other side. So the Red Sea crossing is even more than this astounding miracle of deliverance. The miracle of deliverance in itself is wonderful, praiseworthy. We should be full of worship. But it's even more than that. It is new creation. It's a new birth. It's a passing through the waters of death and judgment onto new life on the other side. It's a monumental event in the life of Israel. And in fact, in the life of the entire human race. I think we can begin to see why they sang on the other side. It's the only appropriate response. This was a monumental event. But it was a monument to something even greater. Listen to what the New Testament makes of the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The Apostle Paul is interpreting the Red Sea crossing as a kind of baptism. That's the concept he uses to describe it. It's a baptism. In faith, Israel entered into the waters of death and judgment, and by God's grace they emerged into new life. Jesus himself was baptized in the Jordan River. He entered into the waters of judgment in solidarity with sinful Israel. He emerged from those waters to the sound of his father saying, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Later, Jesus would describe his death and resurrection as a baptism. A baptism. And by his spirit, we share in that baptism. So that the Apostle Paul, again, in Romans 6, can say this. Don't you know that all of us who, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or in Romans 8, no, in all of these things we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, 
nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors. Or in another translation, in Christ we have total victory. He is the victor. He is God's victory over God's enemies or the enemies of God's people. He is our victory. The Red Sea victory is a monument to his ultimate victory over sin and judgment and death and Satan. He defeated them all at the cross and won the prize of new resurrection, of resurrection, of new life, of new creation, of a new humanity in a new birth. He shares the spoils of his victory with us by his spirit. Now that was a mouthful. So inhale, exhale. While we ask the simple question, the obvious question, what are we supposed to make of all of that? How are we, how do we even begin to respond to all of that? Well, thanks be to God, I think we find the beginnings of an answer in Israel itself, in, our, in, the, in this historical account of what happened either side of the Red Sea. What we learn from them is that in the light of this great victory, we can respond in at least three ways. We stand firm, we step out, and we sing. We stand firm, we step out, and we sing. So firstly, standing firm. As we said, Israel are caught. They trapped. They caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. They cry out to the Lord and to Moses. Listen to Moses' response, Exodus 14, verse 13. Do not be afraid. This is Moses addressing the people. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of, that the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians that you see here today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Israel's enemy is Pharaoh. He's a formidable enemy. His chariots are mentioned over and over and over again in the story. So if you have your Bible op open, just scan down. Scan down, scan through chapter 14, and notice how many times, chapter 15, notice how many times chariots are mentioned. Now, when you see the word chariot, read nuclear warhead. Because chariot, the chariot was the pinnacle of military technology at that time. The absolute pinnacle. So here is Putin with his entire nuclear arsenal bearing down on the Ukraine with their Molotov cocktails. That's what we have. And yet Moses says... Stand and be still. With respect, Moses, if ever there was a time to panic, it's now. Okay, you want to take your keep calm and carry on coffee mug and smash it against the wall. But no. Moses says, stand and be still. He calls for courage. He calls for calm. How on earth can he call for those things? Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord does, and the Lord wins. The song of the sea ends like this. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns forever and ever. 
Now that word for rain occurs 15 times in the first half of Exodus. 14 out of the 15 apply to Pharaoh. It is Pharaoh who's king. Pharaoh reigns. Pharaoh rules, uncontested. It's absolute monarchy. But all of that comes to an end at the Red Sea. Victory belongs to the Lord. And now the Lord reigns, and he will reign forever. Let's think about the life of this church. Because we too have a a tyrant who is mad with rage, who is chasing after us with murder in his eyes. We've been set free, but he wants us back. He wants to enslave us. We cry out to the Lord for help. How does he respond? Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. We stand in the victory of Christ. In his victory. He is our only refuge on the day of evil. There is no other refuge. It's the only place to go. We stand in the victory of Christ. And in Christ we don't have to flee in fear. We don't have to cower in terror. We can stand because we stand in his strength, not in ours. Do you see? Now for some of you, Today is the day of evil. And the devil has so very many schemes. Perhaps he is trapping you in your guilt and your shame. Perhaps he is oppressing you with the ugly brokenness of this fallen world. Perhaps he is blinding you to any meaning or purpose or joy in your life so that you're just groping around in the darkness. Perhaps he is tempting you with pleasure to forget your God. Or tempting you with pain to curse your God. Perhaps he is distracting you with work or with leisure into living only for the here and now and only for yourself. Perhaps he is choking your faith with the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Whatever it is, you do not have to fall. You can stand in the victory of Christ. And if you do fall, you can get up again and stand again in the victory of Christ. None of your failures can undermine his success. None of your defeats can touch his victory. You can take courage from the fact that the battle may not be over but the war's already won. And God's word promises us that Satan will also be swallowed up by the deep. Only his is a lake of fire. Cling to the victory of Christ. Cling to the victory of Christ and you will stand because it's his victory and you stand in his strength. It's how God's people across the ages have stood their ground. 
Martin Luther wrote in his catechism these words, Thus we must regard baptism and make it profitable to ourselves, that when our sins and conscience oppress us, we strengthen ourselves, we take comfort and say, Nevertheless, I am baptized. And he wasn't just preaching. He went through a season in his life when he was, when he was literally fleeing, fleeing for his life, fleeing to survive. And he took uh, refuge in some remote castle. It was a time of deep, deep discouragement and doubt, and he felt heavily oppressed by Satan. And the question, our question is, how did he stand? How did this great giant of a faith stand on his day of evil? The castle servants would often hear him shouting, screaming in defiance, I am baptized. When you are feeling defeated, discouraged, oppressed, pursued, remind yourself, I am baptized. By the Spirit of Christ, I am baptized into the death of Christ. And so I will rise in his resurrection. I share in his victory. I have total victory in Christ. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. That is how you stand. We stand. We step out. Sometimes all we can do is stand and that's enough. But this all-encompassing victory of Christ empowers us to do even more. It empowers us to step out. Look at Exodus 14, verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to go forward. It's such a simple instruction, isn't it? Tell the people of Israel and wait for this enormous, enormously profound word from the Lord. What is the word from the Lord? Go forward. I think we are like Israel. We're so much like Israel in our unbelief, in our fear. We find this prospect of this journey through the wilderness of this life to the promised land. We find it too much to bear. It's, it's overwhelming. And it's just, it's just a burden to us. But you know, faith isn't like that. The Lord doesn't ask us for that. He doesn't ask for the whole journey now. He simply asks that we move forward. He simply encourages us to take the next step, just the next one. The journey of faith is about the next one, the next step, and only the next step. The Lord doesn't ask you to be faithful for a lifetime because he knows you can't give him that all at once. How can you possibly give him a lifetime of faithfulness today? You can't. We are trapped by space and time. We can only live one day at a a time. So you just can't be faithful for a lifetime and give that to the Lord today. But you can be faithful for today. You can be faithful in this moment, in this particular decision, at this particular crossroads. Life is lived one step at a time. You can take the next step, just the next one, just this next one. You can take the next step of faith. If you are faithful for today, as long as it is called today, all of those days will add up to a lifetime. All of those steps 
will get you to the end of the journey and into the promised land. So whatever your darkness, whatever your struggle, your particular burden, whatever havoc Satan is wreaking in your life today, the Lord Jesus says to you, I'm holding your hand. You are safe with me. Now just take the next step. Just this next one. We stand. We step out. And finally we sing. When we burn with worship as we should. For this great warrior God. And the victory that he has won. By bearing our wounds. And suffering our afflictions. And dying our death. When the joy inside overflows and we have to give it wings. When our naked words are just not enough to express our love and our adoration and our devotion for him. What do we do? What do we do with those naked words? We dress them up in music. We turn to song to give those words and those thoughts and the innermost feelings and desires of our hearts. We dress them up in music to give them wings. We sing. We sing of the victory. We sing to the victor. We're going to do that now. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. But as they're coming up, let me just close in these words and let's, let's make these words from Scripture our prayer. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed.